0: Hear the word of the Lord from 2nd Timothy chapter 4. As for me, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. The time of my death is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have remained faithful and now the prize awaits me. The crown of righteousness with which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all who are eagerly looking forward to his appearing Move to verse sixteen. The first time I was brought before the judge, no one came with me. Everyone abandoned me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and gave me strength, so that I might preach the good news in its entirety for all the Gentiles to hear. And He rescued me from certain death. Yes, and the Lord will deliver me from every evil attack and will bring bring me safely into His heavenly kingdom. All glory to God. Forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of God for the people of God. And we say together, thanks be to God. So I have two younger brothers. And when we were growing up as kids, our house was WrestleMania. My mom lived in a constant state of frustration as we broke nearly everything in the house. This is young Mark and Cheryl Pollack right there. I'm the one of hilarity. That's about as orderly as we could get. Later when we grew up, this is what we... Did somebody yell at me? This is what we looked at like next. We are a photogenic group, I, th- I think you can tell. Uh, that is me. And then, wait, go back. And then the guy in the middle is my brother John. The guy next to him is my brother Matt. And that is Watson with one long mop of hair. This is us at our grandparents at my granddad's uh, funeral just this spring. Uh, Go ahead, Andy. My my sister-in-law, Becca, couldn't be there, but we we are sort of grown up. And the three of us have found our way into adulthood. And I think my parents probably never, ever expected that to happen. I've got a lot of respect for, for my brothers, and I'm extremely proud of them and the work they do. Uh, My brother John, the one that was in the middle there, he is two years younger than I am. He serves his community as a physician. He lives in Atlanta, Georgia with his wife, Becca, and their two girls. And my youngest brother, Matt, is eight years younger than I am. And he and his wife, Nicole, spend time, because their house is WrestleMania as well, trying to keep up with their three small boys. Matt, like me, is a pastor, and he serves a, a small church of about 20 people. Well, a couple of years ago, Matt wrote an article for an online publication called A Plain Account, and the contents of his article were just rich and moving. And I, I think that, the, that, the, that, um, that his article is a 21st century reading that is comparable to the first century reading that we did today, that we heard in Second Timothy. This is what he said at the beginning of his article. He said, I was with my mom the last time she ever saw her grandmother. Mom and her grandmother had a very special relationship. For weeks at a time, mom would go visit her grandparents on their small farm in rural Illinois. Those were sacred times for my mom. Grandma Goldie was instrumental in her faith formation. She prayed for mom and for all of her grandchildren fervently. She listened well. She handed the faith that was given uh, given to her on to my mom, and more than anything else, she loved. Their special relationship never waned, even into her late seventies. Grandma Goldie would make long drives to visit us, and my mom would take trips to visit her. After the years had passed where Grandma Goldie could no longer drive, my mom would go get her and bring her home, where they'd spend a week or two together. They'd laugh, they'd shop, they'd tell stories. I remember the last time when we went to see her, like photographs and short video clips. For some reason, it was just mom and me. We drove out to the old farmhouse, and it was so dark. It was a hot July night, and not even one star seemed to lend any light. As dark as it was outside, it appeared only slightly less dim in the house. Grandma Goldie was dying. The lights were low. She laid in bed weak, intermittently crying, for, crying out for water. The first clip I can replay from that night was my mom bending over close and barely squeaking out, Grandma, you're going to see Jesus soon, with tears as they flowed down her face. After standing in the room for a while, as quietly and reverently as we could, a great moment of lucidity came over Grandma Goldie. She looked into my mom's eyes, held her hand, and spoke these ancient words of blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. My mom said goodbye. And as we left the room, Grandma Goldie said over and over, love you, love you, love you. Two weeks later she passed. The episode of our mom saying goodbye to her grandmother plays over and over and over in the reading of 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul knows that his life is, as as he knows it, is coming to an end. And whether clergy or laity, the fact of the matter is we just don't like to talk about death that much. Scientists say that we have a death anxiety, a death anxiety, Rivals the evolutionary urge that is instilled within us That may be the case But all I just know is sometimes it's just too painful for us to talk about death Last spring I was at a gathering for pastors Discussing Barbara Brown Taylor's uh, book A Walk in the Dark And immediately some of those pastors were uncomfortable with the book They felt that traversing through the complexity of a dialogue like this Might, be, might make people uncomfortable and after all, pastors, they need to be seeker-sensitive. That's what we're trained to be anyway. We're trained to make people feel comfortable, 70 degrees in the sanctuary, events for all ages, happy stories, the gospel of self-help. And that's probably why early in the conversation, a young leader, who was kind of shaky, suggested that as Christians, it was wrong to feel the sting of death. That To the stand in the darkness of a scene like this was inherently irresponsible And she suggested it might even be sinful. And that seemed to be the consensus among those that were sitting in the circles around those tables. It's probably the reason why we work hard to make sure that our imminent death is ignored or at least delayed. We eat right, we exercise, we go to the doctor, we take pills and vitamins. In the old days, though, death was right in front of us all the time. Churches were built in the middle of the community and and they came complete with uh, with a cemetery out back. And now cemeteries are found on the far, far outskirts of town. Even obituaries use words that avoid avoid words like death or died. Uh, Obituaries in the newspaper will say this. They'll say that she passed away or went into glory, or is with Jesus, or went home, or received her eternal reward, or completed her mission, or is now with God, or woke up in the arms of Jesus, or is with the angels. I found it interesting that these days, when I go to a funeral, no matter how tragic the death was, or how young the person happened to be who died, these words are said more than ever. I hear it from both pastors and family members alike. They'll say things like this: "I want to make sure that everyone knows that this is actually just a celebration. We don't even use the word funeral anymore. We'll say celebration of life, and I guess that's appropriate, except for the fact that, except for the fact that I want someone to stop putting a roadblock up to grief, and and I want to just shout: This is." Whenever death, I encounter death. This is not right. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Death, death, death. It arrests each one of us. It clutches us and it won't let us go. Several months ago, I did the funeral of a young man that took his life and, and I shared the responsibility of the funeral with another pastor. We spoke from the same message. Uh, we spoke from the same pulpit and his message was, The sun will come out tomorrow. Things will get better. In the morning, you just need to get out of bed and put your feet on the floor. Don't worry, you have God. My message was, this sucks. They were probably both inappropriate things to say in church, but at least my statement was honest. Death is this final statement. Uh, It's the period at the end of a sentence. It's the ultimate form of change and it comes in a variety of ways. This week I met with a man whose, whose wife said that she wanted out of a mar- out of the marriage. That's a form of death. Another said about his work, I, I feel like death here. I, I have no more soul if I continue to stay in this place. I exchanged emails with another whose job will end in the spring because he has aged out of his job. He's strong and he's in good health and he's got a sharp mind. And when I asked him how he was doing, he said, I feel like I'm planning and I'm attending my own funeral. When death meets us, the questions come, the worries arise, the, the pain hits us hard. We ask the question, how will I go on? What, what will become of us? And I've wondered often about Timothy as he receives these this these words this letter from Paul, Timothy um, Timothy had not known a life without Paul. Paul was connected to him, shared life with him, like our mom and grand, like our mom and grandma Goldie. They spent time together. They traveled. They shared stories. And sometimes, actually, the fear in the one left behind is the one who is. The fear is greater in the one left behind than the one who is leaving this life. Do we have a spill back there? I can see it all like moving around. Everybody all right? I'm talking about death here, everybody. (laughs) Are we good to go? I cried when I was speaking to my grandma Goldie. Are we set? Let me say it again. Sometimes the fear is greater in the one left behind than the one who is leaving this life. Now, I'm speculating, but I think that Timothy uh, has not only lost his mentor and his fa- father figure, but I I think that when re- Timothy receives this letter, he's now feeling the pressure of stepping in, into Paul's shoes. Paul is legendary, and Paul's burden for the church is now Timothy's burden to bear. And I I think... That as I imagine this text that has come from Paul to Timothy, this intimate letter, this moment, I'm sure that the thing that Timothy wants more than anything is the assurance that, that leaving everything as he has done, to do this work, this work with God, for the sake of, with Paul, for the sake of the gospel, was the right thing to do. And that he, 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 I just think that he's wondering, do I have what it takes to speak the truth of God? And I wonder, when he reads this text, if he has the, da- I, I wonder if he has doubts of his own ability to carry on. I think Timothy is be okay. I think this is what Timothy is dealing with. Can I? Can I do it? Are you with me, God? Like the words given to our grandma Goldie, these final words of Paul to Timothy are what we call a benediction. They're called grace words. They're grace words for his son, son Timothy. But even as we are invited into this, this scene and, and we're seeing and feeling it, there is more going on than, than meets the eye. Not only are, are Paul's words the message, but Paul's very life and his death have become the message for Timothy. In fact, he says this, "'My life is being poured out like a drink offering.'" You know, benedictions, the one that you receive every single week, the benedictions are not just nice words. The benediction that uh, my grandma Goldie gave to my mother, they were not just nice words, they're embodied words. They're words that just doesn't, don't cause us to feel something. They're actually what we call words charged with motivating power by God's spirit. Grandma Goldie's blessing was not just a goodbye, as they were, like, delivered. But when they were delivered, they became holy words that called upon those in her hearing to carry on. In Matt's article, he said, that night was so difficult. It was hard for me to watch my mom so sad. It was a pain that I had never seen in her before. The weight of death seemed too heavy for her to bear. But at the same time, It was a holy moment. Grandma Goldie's words, spoken so gently with a faintness of breath, pushing them from behind, carried incredible authority. Grandma Goldie's mantle fell on my mom, and this blessing would sustain her. It gave her assurance. God was with Grandma Goldie, even as she lay dying, and the Lord will remain present with mom. At its reading, whether it's Matt's article or Paul's letter, it's, easy to, it's really easy to feel the scene. It's easy to know that as we encounter an exchange like this, that we've actually stepped into something sacred, that, that we found, we've we stepped into something sacred and we're peering into a, a love deeper than words can describe. Those who have had these kinds of experiences of love can feel it just the moment that you hear these stories. Those who haven't ever experienced these moments of love have, they've, but have longed for it might even be able to feel it even deeper. In a strange sort of upside-down way, um, that's what these, I, I call these, these death moments do for us. Only in these sort of death moments are the true depths of love revealed. Only in the midst of death can we actually see who is with us and how deep true love goes. Words like these remind us that, that death is a reality for all of us. And if we push it away, like if we push away texts like these and scenes like the one that my brother writes about or even our own experiences, we miss out on the fact that we could be reminded that only in death can we find what a life Of meaning truly is all about and that should be the charge for us young Timothy young Dana young Tori young Andy young you like grandma Goldie like Paul you need to let your life be a drink offering poured out do you know what we have decided to do here at the 8th Street Church it's going to sound really strange. We've decided to embrace, embrace death by telling death stories. I know it seems sick, a little bit morbid, maybe even a little nuts, but it's absolutely true. We have decided to embrace death by telling death stories. But we've embraced death, and we've embraced death stories on purpose. And the reason that we want to do this is because we want to acknowledge that death which is the bad news, exists all around us. But, but we also believe that only in acknowledging the, that bad news, those death stories, only in seeing that, that we believe that which is good and that which is true and that which is noble and that which is right and that which is just, that which looks like love, it's only when we tell our death stories that we will see those things emerge up in the midst of it. And each week, We gather to tell the death story. It's the one that reminds us that in bread and wine, a body was broken, and his blood was poured out like a drink offering. And it was done for us, and it was done for our good. But there's even more. By telling the death story, we're presented with a charge a charge like what my mom received, a charge like what Timothy received. It's a charge to love, to love unto death, to love by pouring out our lives as a drink offering like Paul did, like Grandma Goldie did. This, like Paul and like Grandma Goldie, both who ran the race, both who fought the good fight, both who were judged by God and received the victor's crown, by their words and their examples, they were welcomed into a life of love that cannot be overcome by death. And for Christ... And it's because, that because Christ is the great judge that will never abandon us. He is the one that is with us in life, the one that is with us in death, and the one that is with us even beyond death. You know, I have been thinking this week about, about the people that I know that have poured their lives out as a holy sacrifice, that have embraced death stories only to watch life stories emerge out of that. And I have I've watched two young Timothys pour their lives out as a drink offering. And their names are John and Matt, my brothers. For a time, John and his family worked a, at a couple of hospitals in Ethiopia in Africa where he did surgery in places that were no cleaner than your backyard shed. They sold everything they had to offer themselves as an offering to pour themselves out. One time I asked him what, kind of, what, what that kind of work was like, and he said, I'm scared every single day. Now, since they've come back to the U.S., John still does good work in a hard setting. He's the chief of surgery at the VA hospital there in Atlanta. He tries to care for veterans while he's short staff and resources, but he just keeps plugging away at it. You know, he never once got into doctoring for the money. He got into it because he cared. And Matt is in his line of work for the same reason as John. It's just because he cares. It plays out in a different way. But in a day and, a time, in a day and time when pastors are judged, not on well, how well they embody and proclaim hope, but rather on how successful they are at collecting and gathering or how much money they can raise or how big a facility they can build, he ignores all the hype, sees it all as vanity, and remains steadily faithful to that small band of 20 people. And in turn, he's become one of the best pastors and preachers that I know. He prepares sermons every week with the same kind of fervency and discipline for those 20 people as if, as if, it would, as if 5,000 people would show up. And collectively, Paul, Grandma Goldie, John, Matt, their lives are poured out in a sacrifice and it becomes our charge. This was the letter that was, this letter was for Timothy. But after all of these years, the church has somehow got a hold of a copy. And the church has held on and protected and preserved this letter. And the reason they did it is while it was an intimate exchange between two people, now what it's become is it's a benediction for us. It's become a charge for us. Paul's benediction is now for us. And for the last four years, we have been asking as a church the question, what does it mean to love our neighbor? What does it mean to be very good neighbors? Over the last three, you know, the last five or six weeks, 30 or 40 people have been meeting on Sunday morning for prayer and to practice discernment. Our congregation is growing and we are maturing and we have been praying together, acknowledging that we are in a new phase of life and maturity as a congregation. And we have been trying to discern what God may have for us. And this is the only thing I know that he is saying to us, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. All I know is he is saying to us, run the race, fight the good fight. Be faithful, and at the end, even if no one's with you, I will be, and I will be your judge, and you'll receive the crown of righteousness. That's all I know. We've been asking these questions, and I just want to put them on the screen for you, or on the wall. We don't have a screen on the wall. It's uh, questions that I want us to think about. Almost six weeks ago, we asked these questions together as a congregation questions that we've been wrangling with, questions that we've been asking God's help on. How committed are we in doing the things that we said that we wanted to do? Are we really willing? uh, what, What are we willing to do to maintain our identity, which we want and yet continue to grow into it? In other words, are we willing to grow and mature as a congregation? The third question is this, are we willing to adapt, take on new responsibilities and challenges in order to become the kind of people that we want to be? And what will, we, what, what, what will happen to us when we meet resistance? Just how brave are we willing to be? As I read these letters from, Timothy, from Paul to Timothy, This is the question that comes up to me. Just how brave are we willing to be? And Paul's charge is, be as brave as you possibly can be with love. You know, uh, that that is very possible for us to do. And I know it's possible for us to do because we tell a death story every single week. And the death story goes like this. Christ shares in our suffering. It's the story that we tell a death story every time we come to the Lord's table. It's a story of death, but it is also a story by which life emerges and love emerges out of death. It's a story that goes, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. And I invite you into this story by inviting you to this table. I want to remind you, even though you know it, and even though we say it every single week, I want to remind you of the death story that on at dinner on the night before Jesus was betrayed by those he came to save, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you and whenever you eat it, I want you to remember me. And then in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant that comes in my blood. Whenever you drink this, do so in affectionate remembrance of me. The way in which Paul got to declare and testify that my life has been poured out as an offering only happened because of the empowerment that was given to him in the example and the spirit of Jesus himself, who was the first to pour his life out as an offering. And so these are our words. They are not just words with meaning. They're actually embodied words because we know people who have done this starting with our Lord himself, and then they become a charge for us a charge to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. So anybody who is willing to participate in the way of Jesus in this way is welcome to this table. John Wesley said, strangely, that communion is a gift. It's a place by which we get saved. In other words, when we offer something up, we find that more is returned to us. How this works is a mystery. I do not understand it, but I think it is happening in this community. And when we first first came here, we did not know who we were, but now we come to this table and we find that we are saved, saved from our ways, saved from our selfishness, saved from our past, saved for a new future. And if that is what you long for, as I do, you are welcome to this table. We want no barriers, so our bread is gluten-free, our wine is non-alcoholic. When you come, I invite you to leave your row, come down the aisle with your hands cupped, ready to receive that which is good and that which comes from God. We do not take communion here. We receive it because this is a good gift. For any reason, you can't come down our aisle, wave at Justin. He'd love to come serve you, bring the elements to you. But friends, when you are ready, I invite you to come to this table.